You are listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. To find out more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now a message from the series, Subjects from the Sermon on the Mount. Father, we're going to open up your word. It's the word that you had the Son give to us. Um, These are Jesus' words that we're going to look at. And he said them, and that's pretty remarkable that we have a chance to talk about what Jesus said here this morning. And I pray that the Spirit, the same Spirit that does live within us, will um, honor the words of the Son for your glory, Father. And uh, you'll just impress these truths on people's hearts. Amen. Amen. We all can grab a seat. I'm about to start singing there. That would have been bad. Woo, y'all don't want that. Hey, here's the deal. I had the opportunity to grow up in the greatest decade that's ever been existence and known to man. I had the privilege to live and to grow up during the 80s. I mean, man, I was eight years old when 1980 came and I never looked back. Woo! Here's the deal with the 80s. The 80s had some of the best music. The 80s had some of the best movies. The 80s had the best fashion ever known to people. And here's a great thing about being a child living in the 1980s in the Northeast. And I even talked to Fowler and some other fellow Northeasterns, and this is true. Ready? In the 80s, in the Northeast, on Saturday mornings, you know what we got to watch? We got to watch wrestling. And I mean, it was great because Hulk Hogan was in the prime of his career. And Hulk Hogan, with all of his fake tan, baby oil, shirt-ripping Hulkamania, was on my TV set every Saturday morning. And it was great. I mean, Hulk Hogan, the force of good, would fight the wrestling forces of evil until he took a brief sabbatical and became evil. But then Hulk Hogan became good again. And every Saturday morning, it was great. He would like throw people and smash people and rip heads off and blood would fly and chairs would fall. It was great. But then one day, one day, my whole life came crashing around me in just a few small words that one of my friends said to me when he said to me, Hey, uh, Peter, you know it's fake. What? No, it's not fake, not Hulk. Peter, it's fake. And my whole life just crumbled around me. I was devastated. But that devastation pales in comparison to the devastation that I feel as an adult. When I'm devastated, when I have my hot, fresh, perfectly brewed cup of coffee. And I'm taking my hot, fresh, perfectly brewed cup of coffee to that place where the half and half should be kept. And I walk towards that place, whether it's in a restaurant or over here at our place or at friend's house. And all of a sudden, I'm looking for my half and half. But what do I see? I see this. Oh! Now, I was so devastated because race wrestling was fake. And I'm so devastated by this. Now, some of you may like it, and that's okay. We all have sin in our lives, and God's going to work on that with you. But... I mean, here's the deal with this, right? You pour it into your coffee and there's some weird sort of chemical reaction that nobody knows about. It doesn't taste like half and half. And I've had some people say, 
Oh, Peter, you know it tastes just like cream. But, but here's the problem with that statement. It might say coffee creamer here, but then you slip it around, and on the back, in big letters, it says a non-dairy product. I mean, I, you know, I don't even really know what this thing is. Seriously, I don't know what this is. It's some random mystery product, and I hate it because it's fake. And I'm a guy... While I'm insulting the people that like fake creamers, I'm a guy who this time of year likes a real Christmas tree. All right, great. I got one person. The rest of you all are a bunch of fake Christmas tree people. Here in Connecticut, on a crisp November end of the year day, I would go to Jones Tree Farm in Monroe, Connecticut. I would have my saw with my parents in one hand. We would go look for the trees on this beautiful hillside. It'd be cold. We'd pick the perfect real tree. We'd cut it down and we'd bring it back to our house and it was beautiful. But some folks have fake Christmas trees and it's like in a box somewhere. And you pull out a box and you put it together like Legos and oh. And here's what's even scarier about that, right? What's even scarier about it is some of you have fake Christmas tree smell to spray on your fake Christmas trees. Ah! And you probably put it together and spray the spray while you're putting fake creamer in your coffees. I hate things that are fake. Here's the thing, though. You know, fake things... Things that aren't real oftentimes, many times, can be more convenient. I mean, this fake creamer, you don't have to refrigerate it. If you travel, they make little packets to put in your suitcase to take with you. And here's something that's, I I don't know if it's convenient or not, but if we put this creamer right here, and we waited until Jesus came back to earth, that creamer would still be good. (laughs) If you get a real Christmas tree, I mean, there's sap, and there's prickles, and you can cut, and it's a little messy. But you know, the truth is sometimes messy things are the real things. And the real things are much better than the fake things, even though the fake things can be much more convenient. And to me, in my opinion, there is nothing that ruins a nice, delicious cup of coffee faster than fake creamer. And to God, in his opinion, there is nothing that can ruin a group of people faster than fake Christians. There is nothing that can be more harmful and problematic to a group of people who call themselves Christians who are practicing their faith than people who are fake about their spirituality. And we all somewhere know that at some level, but this morning as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to press into that question a little bit. And we're going to think and talk about what does Jesus say about being fake in your Christian life? Why are we fake? And then we'll think about what can we do about those things. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 as we think about this. Matthew chapter 6. And here's the deal. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount today, and then we're going to take a little sabbatical. Next week, we're going to start a Christmas series and have four weeks or so, kind of an Advent theme about Christmas, and then we'll resume the Sermon on the Mount. But it's kind of a good halftime to just think about where have we been, for those of us that have been here together so far in the Sermon on the Mount. What have we talked about? Where have we been? Because here's our hope. We hope that based on our philosophy of preaching that that you will do more than just walk out of the room on a Sunday morning knowing more about a Bible verse. We hope that if you stick around with us at the end of a series on a book or section, you'll know more about, man, I know about the themes of that book or the structure of that and that it will be helpful 
to you. So let's just think as we're about to take a break for a few weeks about what have we seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has done a bunch of teaching and miracles, and then he kind of called his disciples towards him. And he brought them over to this place where there was this plain, this hill, and he started instructing his disciples. He started instructing his people, his subjects, about the things they needed to know. And in the crowd, there were a bunch of different religious leaders and different onlookers, but the target of his audience was his followers. And the first thing that Jesus talked about with them and the first thing that we talked about was really the question of what does a subject look like? What does a subject look like? We were looked to the Beatitudes. We saw that they're meek, they're pure in heart. They seek righteousness. The next thing that Jesus moved into and the next thing that we moved into was the question of how does a subject impact their world? How does a subject impact their world? We talked, Bill talked things about salt and light and the way we're to impact the world. The section that we're just finishing, Jesus was kind of pressing into this issue of how does a subject interact with the Old Testament law? What role does the Old Testament law have on the life of the subject? And we spent a few weeks talking about things like adultery and murder and hate and anger and forgiveness and oaths. And time and time again, Jesus said, okay, I'm going to reaffirm the Old Testament law for the life of my subjects, but I'm going to push it deeper. And I'm going to expect more. That's where we've been. And today we're going to start this new section that we're going to pick up after the Christmas series where it's really practical. And what Jesus is going to get into, the question that he's going to try and ask is this. How should a subject act amidst the everyday activities of their life? How does a subject act amidst the everyday activities of their life? For those of us who are Christians, when we come here and worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we pay our bills, when we go to work, when we try and figure out how we're going to meet those financial obligations, when we're worried, when we do all of those things that make up every day of our lives, how are we as subjects to do those things. And as we start that conversation, there's kind of this transition verse between what we ended last week about the Old Testament law and where we're going to go today. And that transition verse is kind of this command that overarches this old thing, and it's seen in Matthew 5, verse 48. And this is what Jesus is telling his people as we think about how we're to live in our everyday lives. Jesus says this, You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, my subjects, must be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect. There's two layers to that. The first is Jesus is setting this incredibly high standard to try to make people realize that without him, they're really never going to ultimately reach that standard. And he's kind of setting up the need for him. But the second layer of this is, is Jesus really means what he's saying. Jesus says, if you're my subject, as you live in your everyday life, what I want you to understand is that you've got to pursue obedience. There's this command that starts our conversation today where Jesus says, be obedient. As my subjects, be obedient. And for some of us, we need to stop right there because we'll be obedient in the areas of our life that we like. We'll be obedient in those areas of their life that are easy for us to be obedient. But maybe there's these areas over here where, man, you're running from that, you're hiding from that, you're ignoring that. And what Jesus says in every aspect of your life, I'm not going to water down the standard. I'm not going to water down the expectations. I want my subjects to be obedient people. Be obedient. But, but Jesus knew the tendency 
of his disciples. Jesus knew the tendency of those religious people that were there, and Jesus knows the tendency of you and me as religious, churchy people. And so he continues that conversation. And right after saying that command, that charge to be obedient, he starts in verse 6 by saying this, Beware! That's a strong word. It's like a heads up. Watch out. Pay attention. Beware. And here's the caution that Jesus is going to give. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Jesus gives this command to his subjects and says, be obedient. But he follows that up right away with this caution. And his caution is this. As my subjects, don't do the right religious things for the wrong reasons. As people in my kingdom who are striving for obedience, you strive for obedience, you strive for purity, but please don't do the right religious things for all the wrong reasons. There's a few words here that that help flesh out really what Jesus is getting into. The first we see in this verse where he says, beware of practicing righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them. Be seen, it means to be noticed, to have people pay attention to you, be impressed. It's the word from which we get our word theater, standing in the center of the stage, having everybody notice you. There's another word that we're going to hear in just a few minutes and will be throughout this section. That's the word hypocrite. And many of you know what that means, but that's really a Greek term for an actor during that day. For that person who would stand on the stage and when they were playing a certain character, they would pick up a mask. And they would put the mask on and wear it so that you would be able to see the character that they were playing so that they could be able to disguise who they really are and you would look at the character and notice that. And what Jesus is saying is I want you to be holy, obedient people, but at the same time, I don't want you to be people that are doing the right religious things for all the wrong reasons. Now, some of you may think, well, if we're not supposed to do things to be people seen by us, then I guess I have to go run and hide anytime I might do anything good, right? Like anytime I might do a good thing, like put real half and half in my coffee and not fake creamer. The most spiritual thing anybody could ever do to please Jesus. Right, I guess I have to go hide whenever I read my Bible. No, 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 Jesus isn't saying that. The issue is not whether people see you doing good things. The issue is whether you are doing those good things to be seen by people. Don't oversteer. The issue isn't whether other people around you see you doing good things. The issue is whether you and I are doing good religious things to be seen by people. And here's the observation. Here's what Jesus is getting at. If you are doing the right things to try to impress other people, then that's wrong. If you are doing right religious things to try to impress other people, that is wrong. And let's make it a little bit stronger. Let's press it a little bit further because Jesus certainly does in other places. It displeases God for you to do right religious things just to impress other people. It displeases God. God despises it when I do right religious things just so people notice me and be impressed with me. And some of you might be thinking, oh, Peter, that's a little heavy. I mean, eh, he really despises it. It displeases him. I mean, it's a right thing. It displeases God for you to do and me to do right religious things to impress other people because here's why. You know what happens when we do that? When we're doing all these right things for other people to notice them, do you know whose glory we're concerned about? 
We're concerned about our glory. We're concerned about our reputation. We're concerned what people think about us. When as subjects of God, everything that we should do in every act of obedience should be to push people and to proclaim God's glory and point other people to him. Now, some of you are thinking, whew, man, I'm okay. Because glory, like, that's a big Christmas carol word. We sing that. That's like a big Jesus word. That's like God gets all the glory. I know that. I'm not about my own glory. Maybe you don't say the word glory, but maybe your heart reveals that when you make this comment. Oh, I'm just kind of concerned about my image. Kind of worried about my image and what people think about me. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to guard his disciples from and exactly what all the religious people who were listening to him were worried about. See, the hypocrites, they would give the money, but you know what? They were hypocrites because they didn't care about the needs of the people being met. All they cared about is that other people saw them doing the right things. And so many times we may not phrase it as we're concerned about our own glory, but so many of us so many times are so worried about our own image. And here's the thing. Even if you are the most successful, hard-charging, type-A person in the world, Deep within every single one of us is this longing for acceptance and significance. We all want to be accepted. We all want significance. And what some of us do to try to get that is we can choose two courses of action. Some of us, to try to get our identity, to try to get acceptance, you know what we turn to? We turn to rebellion. And we say, you know what, I'm going to go over here. Forget what that church says. Forget what people say. I'm going to go over here because I get my acceptance. I get identity. This partying, this deal, this works for me. Woo! But then there's those of us who are good, churchy, Sunday school people. And good, churchy, Sunday school people don't turn to rebellion, but we have within us this desire that I want to accept, that I want significance. And what we've turned to instead is, like the Pharisees, performance. Where we show up at all the right Sunday schools or all the church things at all the right time. We know all the right Bible answers. We're good little boys. We're good little girls. We perform, we perform, we perform. And what results from that performance is approval. That people start saying, oh, man, you're so good. You're so smart. And we get the approval from that. And it gives us the acceptance and significance we want. But then this problem starts that all of a sudden, then we have to spend all this energy propping up this image of this good little performing person that we've created. Because, oh, I got approval when I kept the rules, when I did it right. I got to keep doing that. I got to keep doing that. I got to keep doing that. Keep my image up. Keep my image up. Keep my image up. And when we, like the Pharisees that Jesus railed against, become all consumed with our image, when we do right religious things to maintain our own image, there's all sorts of pitfalls to that. When we are people that pursue image, and trying to impress people by doing good things, it creates bondage. We become enslaved to it because everything that we do, we're like, oh, I can't let them see the real me. I got to keep doing that. I got to maintain my image. There's a focus on who you think you have to be. There's this focus on, well, the perfect pastor looks like this, or they said the perfect mom or the perfect dad or the perfect parent. And there's all this focus on who we think we have to be, and we live for that instead of living for who we really are when we stuck with our image cause us to spend all this time acting 
We start using each other to fulfill that image. My interactions with you aren't genuine. My interactions with you are to spin you to make certain you think a certain thing about me. Here's one of the deepest problems. If you're a person who in your longing for acceptance and significance have turned to image to try to get that, one of the deepest problems is that you fear deep and honest, authentic relationships. Because if you get into an honest, deep relationship with somebody, man, they're going to see who you really are. And you don't want that to happen. And the second last big pitfall is this, that, that you're afraid of conflict. Because if somebody upsets you or if they make you mad, well, a good Christian boy or girl never gets mad or never gets angry. And so I can't tell them that. And so what you do is you spend your time when somebody wrongs you or you're upset by something, you find yourself all the time saying these words, oh, no, I'm not mad. I'm fine. And I'm fine can sometimes be so fake and equally bad as creamer. Jesus says, people, subjects, my disciples, people of CBC, you religious leaders who are listening, I'm not watering that standard. I want you to be obedient, but I want to caution you to something. In your quest for obedience, don't do the right religious things for the wrong reasons. And if you're just doing right, churchy, religious things to try to impress other people, then it's wrong. Because you're trying to get your image from what people think of you instead of acting obediently to cause people to think well of me. And you're robbing and stealing the glory that is due God to try to get that for yourself. And that's not what a subject of God does. And so what we need to think about for a few minutes is this. Is, is that's kind of the command and that's kind of the caution that Jesus sets out there. Then what we need to think about are there areas in our lives where you and I have become people that have started to do the right religious things for all the wrong reasons. And let me kind of start at one level. Let me start... <clears throat> as you read the Gospels, as you read the New Testament, who were the people that violated this the worst? Who were the people that were all about their image ugh, and that Jesus, like, despised? And, ugh, who did this the worst? Someone spoke in tongue. We need an interpreter. Right. The religious leaders of that day had this so backwards. And this is a warning for some of you that want to go into the ministry. This is a warning for some of you who are in the ministry. And maybe there's been some people in this room who've been wounded by others in ministry. Listen, today, some of the people that violate this the worst are leaders of ministries. Pastors can be the most insecure people in the world. And what ends up happening is they start to use their ministry, their role of serving. They link that with their identity. And then their identity and their significance is all about how successful is my church? How successful is my ministry? How many people come? Right, right, they rise and fall based on how well received was their last sermon. And oh, and they're up and they're down and they're trying to please all these people about being the best pastor. And what happens is their image and identity is all wrapped up in the success of their church. And then they become controlling. And it's all about their church and their people and not the kingdom. And they're not kingdom mind and they micromanage and it smothers them and it can smother those who are in it. And if you are going to go into full-time professional ministry or you're in it, listen. Don't you dare use the ministry which God has entrusted you with to get your own identity. You serve out of your identity. Don't use your ministry to try to help you find your significance. 
Do you know what the problem is? It's not just those people that lead churches. Sometimes people who attend churches have struggles with this as well. Struggles with image. Let me just ask some questions. I'm going to ask some questions to try to get us thinking about, man, maybe subtly, even not knowing it, are we trying to use and impress each other for our image? And some of you can answer this and answer it generally, and that's great. But let's, here, here's the question. When, for whatever reason, you don't show up at church on a Sunday, do you, like on Monday, find yourself all worrying about, oh, I got to go scurry around and scamper and make sure that the pastor or somebody knew why I wasn't there? Right? If you're out of town, if you're not here, do you find yourself the next time you see somebody that you value in the church saying, well, you know, I wasn't here Sunday, but this is why. Okay. Why do you do that? Why? Are you doing it because you want to make sure that we think that you're a good Christian person who never misses church? Are you doing it because you're trying to prop up your image? Do you drop tidbits of your spiritual life in conversations with us? Do you say things like, well, you know, this morning I was reading in Lamentation 17 for a few hours for my quiet time, and I found out that God was good. Can't you just say, you know what, this morning it really struck me how good God was. Why do you have to tell us that you were reading your Bible? Now, if that's genuine, if that's from your heart, if that's sincere, then that's great. But if you're dropping that spiritual tidbit to try to have us be impressed with you, And Jesus says, whoa, 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 you're doing the right religious things for all the wrong reasons. When you walk into these doors, do you start using a different language? Like a language unknown to common man. Do you start finding yourself saying things like, oh, praise the Lord. Oh, I'm so blessed. Now, if that is genuine, and that is a sincere response of worship to how God has blessed you or what he's doing for you, that is great. But if you're saying those words because you think they're words that a good Christian says and you think the other good Christian wants you to hear those words and you're just talking this Christian vocab to try to impress each other, then you are concerned about your image and you're doing right religious things for the wrong reasons. Are there things in your life that you really want us to know about you? Do you want us to know, well, you know, I served on staff in another church or I did this or I did this or my kids never misbehave? Are there those good things about you that you just start trying to weave conversations towards? When you have conversations with people, do you leave that conversation and for about the next five minutes you're stressing about, oh no, what if they misunderstood me? Oh, what if they think wrong about me? What if they don't really know? Ah, What do they think this? And you're so worried about what they think from you instead of just, you had a conversation, move on. Parents. Parents. Let's say right now one of your children, last time I used the example of my children, I said I'd smack them upside the head with a mic stand first. I won't smack your child. That would be bad. But right now, in this moment, if your child just starts screaming, Mah! is your first thought going to be this? Oh, no, everybody's going to think I'm a bad parent. Shut up, kid. Be quiet. Oh, don't. If they see you acting like this, they're going to think I'm a bad parent. You may not say that, but is that what you're thinking? Because instead of thinking about my child is a sinful little being and I've got to figure this out. Do you think, ooh, these people are going to think I'm a bad parent. It's all about me. Are there people in this church that you're close to? But yet there's struggles in your marriage and there's struggles in your parenting. And you're so afraid to say anything to them. Because if you let them know about those struggles, ooh, they might think I'm a bad parent. 
ooh, if I tell them I'm having a bad time in my marriage, they might think I'm not a good Christian husband or wife. And so you say things like, oh, I'm fine. And you know what? If you do that, you're missing out. Because we're not fine. We're not. If we're Christians, we're forgiven, and God sees us as righteous, but you know what? We are going to struggle. We are going to fall. We are going to sin. There are some of us who can't figure this out and are having hard times, and for us to suppress that and keep that inside because we're so afraid they might think we're a bad this or a bad that, man, we're foolish because we're missing out on the wealth of experience of someone who's gone before us and fallen and struggled and worked, and we could learn from that. But we're so concerned about our own image. Jesus says, be obedient. I'm not watering down any standard. I want you to pursue obedience, but I don't want you to do it for the wrong reasons. And if you're doing obedient things just to impress other people, those are the wrong reasons. And then Jesus continues and tells us the consequence for that. And the consequence we see in a couple places. We see it in Matthew 6, 1, in the second to last part of that, where Jesus says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Same idea is repeated in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their Reward. Here's what Jesus is saying. That if you're doing these right churchy things for all the wrong reason and people are impressed with you, what Jesus is saying, if that's the motive for your doing it, what Jesus is saying, the consequence is this, that your righteousness, your righteousness, whatever good was inherent in that act, means nothing to God. That your hypocrisy and your concern for your image ruins any act of righteousness and any act of worship. And you're not going to be rewarded by God for that. And that's heavy. Because what God and Jesus is saying is, look, okay, you want to run around and you want to impress this person that you read the Bible this morning. And you say something and you spin them and you manipulate them and they think that and they think, ooh, Billy Bob's such a good Christian. He read his Bible this morning. What Jesus is saying is, guess what? You've gotten your reward. The word reward there means it's a word from a commercial business transaction. When something is done, something is given and paid, and it's the end of the deal. Nothing else is given. Paid in full. And Jesus is saying, if you've done a great job impressing that person next to you, and they're impressed with you, then that is all that you are getting. Because you have stolen the glory from me. And I'm not going to give you any reward for that. And that is heavy. Because I like y'all, those of you that I know. I mean, you're nice people. But you know what? Man, what a shame for me to spend all my life trying to impress you and get the glory from you. And miss out on maybe the reward that God wants to give me. I mean, I hope this sermon is a benefit. But, but you know what? If all I'm worried about is, oh, how well do they like the sermon? Is it great? Is it great? And people come up, which you wouldn't do because it's not really And you come up and say, oh, that was the best sermon. Again, it would never happen. But if you did, man, man, if that's all that I've been working about, all I've been driving for, I am missing out on God saying, you know what? You tried to faithfully proclaim my word. I'm proud of you, Peter. I don't want to live for your reward and your applause. I want to live for Jesus well as his subject. 
And I don't want you to be a bunch of fake people living for each other's applause and missing out on the rewards. Listen, there are churches all throughout this town where there are plaques on chairs and plaques on hymn books and plaques on pencils because Aunt Betsy gave this, Aunt Betsy gave that, Aunt Betsy gave that. Guess what? Good for Aunt Betsy. Somebody know that she gave this music stand. And what God's saying is, Aunt Betsy, you were so worried about knowing that. They know. But I'm not going to reward you for that because it was fake. Because you were doing it to impress people because you've already gotten your reward. As subjects of the king in our everyday lives, be obedient in every aspect. As subjects of the king, let's not dare do the right religious things for the wrong reasons because if we do, the consequence of us trying to impress each other and living for image and being fake and wearing the mask, is that what you get from people or all you're going to get and we're going to miss out on our reward from God. That's the big picture of where Jesus is going in this next section. And then Jesus is going to take three kind of microscopic looks at ways that people do religious things for the wrong reasons. He's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about fasting. He's going to talk about praying. And let's kind of see. We've already read some of it. What does he say about giving? He's kind of talking about now, I've given the big picture. I've given the big principle. Let me unpack a little bit specifically about an illustration of giving. And we've read it, but we'll read it again. Jesus says this, Thus when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. A few just observations there. The, the first is this concept of giving to the needy. It's referring to almsgiving. Where there were needs of people and others would give either spiritual or you know, resources, time, money, finances, whatever, to meet those needs. And what most commentators and theologians think is even though this was addressed primarily to giving to meet the needs of the poor by application, it applies to giving to a local church. Because when people give to a local church, the local church exists to meet people's needs. This church exists to meet the spiritual needs of those who don't know Jesus. It exists to meet the spiritual needs of people who know Jesus and trying to grow. It exists to meet the needs physical of the community around us. Churches exist to meet Need. So by application, this applies to that. There's this second deal about blowing the trumpets. Um, some people think it's exaggerated. Others think that in Jerusalem, when there was a special need, that people would blow trumpets. And everybody would come out. And it's saying that, you know what, the Pharisees would just do that all the time so that people would know they're giving. And, and the third kind of thing that jumps out from this is, you know what, Jesus' expectation that his subjects will be people who give, right? Jesus says, thus, when you give, he doesn't say if you give. It's an expectation that people will give, but they'll give for the right reasons. The wrong reason to give is, again, to give in a way to impress people, to give to be showy, to give to be noticed. The right way to give is to give before God, to honor him, to steward your resources. And and let's talk for a minute or two about giving here at CBC. We don't talk about a lot, We should talk about it in this sermon. And when Bill Fowler uh, got this deal up and running, man, this was kind of his philosophy. And it's great. Here's the way we give at CBC. We don't think that it's a visitor's job to give to support this church. Okay? We don't. And in many churches, in many churches, this is true. The whole program is orchestrated to make sure that the giving happens when the most people are in the room. 
Oh, we can't have the plate pass too early because not everybody's there yet. Ugh. And what happens is the plate passes, and visitors are there, and they do either one of two things. They blow it off, or you know what? They throw a 20 in the plate. They throw a 20 in the plate because, oh, gosh, I'm in church. That person next to me looks pretty nice. I better throw a 20 in so that they'll think I'm a good person. They give out a guilt, or a non-Christian visitor will throw a 20 in the plate because they'll think, man, I went out and I got blitzed last night. And, oh, God might be mad at me, but if I throw a 20 in, maybe he won't remember. And way too often, giving in church is done to get the visitors to give, and visitors give out of guilt, or visitors give to bribe God, and we're not going to have that happen here at CBC. Here's how we do our giving. We have those little brown boxes there, two brown boxes in the box, back. They're not suggestion boxes, Okay. So if you're looking for, like, my coffee was a little cold this morning. <clears throat> now, you can write all the comments you want, put your name on them. Okay, but they're not suggestion comments. They are places because we think and we feel, biblically, it is the obligation, it is the responsibility of those that regularly attend here or call themselves members of CBC to give to support CBC so that we can meet the needs of people's spiritual needs, physical needs in the community for the good of the gospel. It is your obligation, if you come regularly or you're a member, to give. Because just Jesus doesn't say, if you feel like it, he says, when. And listen. If you're disobedient and don't give, God can take care of CBC. But you know what? If you're disobedient and a regular attender or a member, you are being disobedient. And here's what, here's what we think. And it's hard. I know it's hard. We all know it's hard. It's hard. It's easier to keep money. Ugh. Here's what some of us think. Well, oh, church, I know I get that. But you know what? This is my job. I mean, I worked really hard for this career or this, or I've worked hard. It's my money. It's my effort. No, it's not. Because if you have an education, if you go to work every day, that is a gift of God. He's given you the mind. He's given you the body to be able to do it. He's given you a ride there. And at any moment, you could lose your job. You could lose your health. Those resources are going to be taken away because you don't really control them. They are given to you by God. God gave you the brain to go to school. He gave you the parents who could pay for it. He gave you the ability to get the loan. All of that was a gift of God. It's all a gift of God. And when you're stingy and... It's not yours. It's not your job. It's a job God's given you that, as many of us know, at any moment you could lose in this economy. So let's be people who steward that well. Okay, one more thing. And this is good, because what we've seen is, man, there's all sorts of wrong ways to do things. There's all sorts of wrong ways to live out our Christianity. But I love that there's one more little clause here. And now we're going to kind of see the correct way to do this. What is the correct approach to this issue of living out our obedience? And here's what it is. We read it in the last part of chapter 6, verse 4. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and the Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Let's flip back to chapter 5, verse 16, to something we talked about a few months ago. This kind of goes hand in hand as we're thinking about what's the right way to live out our obedience in this world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And right now you might think, ooh, that sounds a little contradictory, but look, look at this last clause. And give 
Glory to your Father who is in heaven. The correct way to be subjects of God is to live our lives obediently, live our lives well, to suddenly pick up this piece of paper. Here's the correct way. Ready? The right reason to do the right things is for God's glory. The right reason for you and for me to do the right Christian obedient things is not so that people will think, oh, he's such a great pastor. Oh, he's such a great parent. Oh, he's such a great. The right reason to do this is so that God who has saved you will get the glory from your obedience, not to try to impress the person next to you with what a great Christian you are. The right way to do the right things is for the glory of God and God alone. Here's a few practical steps to play that out. The first one, some of us need to start way back here with this issue of image and identity. And the way that we live well for God's glory is we realize our identity in Christ. Now, I don't, I'm not talking psychobabble Oprah Winfrey stuff, okay? This is what we realized. That Jesus has died for me. That because Jesus was punished for me, He's taking care of my sin problems. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I have significance. I have approval from God because of that. That is my identity. And that should be the place that we fall on to get our sense of significance and our sense for approval. And where image can become such an enslaving force that causes us to be fake and causes us to act and causes us to fear relationships. When we understand our identity from what happened at the cross and we live out of that, it is the most freeing thing in the world because it allows you to be who you truly are, not who you think you have to be. And I don't mean a sinner embracing your sinning. I can swear because I don't mean that. I mean, it gives you the freedom to say, you know what? This is who I am. And I am striving to be the man or woman of God, but I'm not there yet. But I'm not going to look to you to try to get me to feel good about it. My identity is in Christ and I'm going to live out of that. It will give you freedom. You can trust other people. You can share deeply with them because you don't need their approval. You have God's. And it'll give you the courage to live your lives and not be so worried about what other people are thinking about you. So for some of you, in order to be subjects to start living well for God's glory, you need to start right here and recognize your identity. Then you need to know what God expects. You need to understand the full counsel of Scripture, not just the pieces you like, all of it. And you need to act obediently. And then you know what? You do that act of obedience out of your identity for God and God alone. You say, God, this is what I know that you want me to do. This is what you expect of me, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do it so that you see it and so that you are pleased with it, even if nobody else sees that. That means that there will be great areas of your spiritual life that are absolutely secret that we know nothing about, and praise God for that, because that means he's going to reward you for that. And that means that if you are living to please God, if you are living for his glory and you are truly seeking obedience, that there will be times in your life when you're misunderstood. Because you'll, you'll do something or there'll be something said and people will have half the story. And they'll presume things and they'll think things and they'll, ugh. And there's this part of you inside that's like, I want to defend myself. If they really knew all this, if they knew all these good things about me, if they knew that, and the temptation is to go over here and start this self-defense war... But then you're arguing, you're fighting, you're defending to try and impress other people. And that means that if you're living for God's glory alone, there will be aspects of your spirituality that are absolutely secret that we don't know anything about. And that means that there will be times in your lives when other people will think incorrectly about you. 
and yet you will have to maintain the course and not fight to defend yourself. Obviously, sometimes you defend your reputation, but you know what? Your first obligation is before God. And that's hard. Because we want everybody to think properly. Oh, they have the wrong idea. Man, that's life. (sighs) You know what? There's too much great stuff going on at CBC for the pastors and the staff to try to figure out what do 500 people think that a good pastor looks like and try and bounce around to be that. You could wear yourself out. We're not going to do that. We're going to say, you know what, here's what the Bible says a good pastor should be like, and we're going to get in each other's face about it, we're going to be honest about it, and we're going to strive and press on and lead you folks in that instead of bouncing about like some pinball trying to make everybody happy. (laughs) And there's too much good stuff going on in the city of Savannah for you to worry so much and so constantly simply about what other people think and miss out on worrying about and striving for what does God think. We are subject of the king who live our everyday lives here in Savannah. We are people who should strive for obedience. We are people who must not do the right religious things for the wrong reasons. If we do do the religious things to impress other people, that's wrong. And the consequence of that is you'll impress them because you gave that little songbook. But God says, you don't have any reward from me. You've trumped any good act of righteousness. But the corrective, the corrective is to obey and do obedient things for the glory of God some of you this morning, as we transition into worship, as you kind of think about what this means for you, some of you in this room are in ministry, you have been in ministry, you know what? You are using a privileged ministry, whether it be on the worship team, whether it be here at CBC, whether it be in another church, you're using your ministry for your identity. You are using your ministry to try to prop up your image, and that is wrong. Some of you in this room maybe are bitter. I've done so many good things. Nobody knows. Nobody thanks me. They're ungrateful. Bitter, bitter, bitter. You know what? Stop being bitter. If God knows the righteous acts that you've done come to a place, maybe even during worship, where you just let go of that bitterness. And you say, God, I'm sorry for what I've made, my acts of righteousness. I'm sorry that I'm so worried on whether, Father, I'm sorry. And realize that he approves and he knows what you've done and he really rewards you. And some of you maybe aren't bitter, but you're sad. And you're sad because you've done a good job here. You've done a good job in your family. You've done a good job and nobody's appreciated it. And that very well could be the fault of us or other people. But you know what? Jesus knows and he really rewards you. And then there's some of you. Man, you're so insecure. And you do such a good job of appearing so confident and strong. But inside, you're like this timid little mouse. And you just want people to like you. And you want, oh, I want them to approve. I want significance. And maybe during worship, when we sing songs, coming back to what it's truly about, saying we're for our glory, take our lives, God, for glory. Man, this is the morning when maybe you just need to give your insecurity and your worries and your lack of image to the Father. And come in a fresh way and saying, God, I know that you approve me. May I rest in that and live out of that. I don't know if any of you are in that camp. And there's one other camp we've got to approach this morning. And you know what? Maybe some of you are in this camp. And maybe some of you are in the camp of the legalists. 
Well, you know what? You've got your ten little rules. And you've got your mind about what a good Christian this looks like or a good Christian that looks like or a good Christian that looks like. And you've kind of made yourself the moral police. And you've imposed your little rules of ten things on other people. And you're holding them and you're smothering them. And you're causing other people to have to live in fear of image because you're judging them. And you're... Listen, your job is not to make your ten little rules of what you think other people should do. Your job is to make sure that you're complying with the rules that God said you should do. And some of you that are so entrenched in legalism and you're imposing your legalistic standards on other people, this is the morning that you need to stop. Because nobody should have to feel like they have to live up to your standards. And if you're making them think that you're the ultimate judge, you're wrong. Because what they need to realize is they don't have to live up to your standards. They need to live up to God's standards. So stop your legalism. Stop imposing that on other people and come alongside them and saying, this isn't about what I think you should do. I am going to focus on what God tells me to do and do that the best I can for his glory. I don't know where you are, but I know one thing. It is the privilege of my life to be on staff here at this church. I love this church. And I want this church never, never to turn into a churchy place. Because that would be a travesty and would be a mockery of what God has done here. I want this to be a church where we are people striving to be real for his glory. And we embrace and we love each other when we fall down. And that's the kind of church I want because that kind of church will make an impact in your life. And it will resound God's glory in Savannah. And that's what I want to be part of. May have the worship team come up here and let me pray. Father, this is what Jesus said to people years ago on a hill. And that's cool. Um, And we all struggle with different degrees. And I pray the Spirit right now will encourage some of those who are bitter because we haven't received our reward from men. I pray the Spirit will convict some of us who have tried to impose legalism on other people to make them live up to a standard. I pray that the Spirit will cause all of us to become people that are passionate followers of you for your glory and for your renown until the day that we see you face to face amen